That is a great way for us to start. Thank you, Chandice. It was well put together. You don't know it, but uh, that pretty much follows exactly, those three songs pretty much follow exactly the, the pattern that Peter establishes for us this morning that we're going to be, uh, we're going to be looking at. It really, really leads in well. You hang around church long enough and inevitably you're going to hear words and terminology uh, that you don't really hear outside of church. We speak our own kind of language within the church, our own Christianese as it's called. We use words, we say things, we do things uh, that nobody else does. And it's things that seem to make sense to us whenever we're within the confines of our community and our group. But whenever we say these things outside, these words often take on totally different meaning and they sound kind of strange sometimes. And in the way that, that we, we talk about things, and the words that we use, words like sanctification, words like righteousness, words like salvation, which is what we're going to talk about today. And it can, in doing this, it can really create some problems. It can create some problems uh, outside uh, as, as those on the outside look in as, at what we're talking about and kind of get lost in the, the words that we use. And so we have to be careful with that. Here at Providence, we try to be careful with that, that uh, if we use some of these words that are more common within the, the, the Christian world, that we try to define our terms well. But that's not just for those that are on the outside. That's also for those that are here within the community because uh, and, and within the church because uh, often what happens is we fill in the blanks for these words with our own definition. I mean, there's probably a whole host of these words that we could uh, probably do our own sermon series on. We could do a whole sermon series on church words. Um, that's actually one that I might keep a, keep a note on because we could do pretty uh, good there. But I think uh, really there's one word that we use a lot uh, that we will talk about this morning, and it's this idea of salvation. What do we mean when we use the word salvation? What, what do we mean whenever we say somebody got saved? How do you fill in the blanks for that word? Whenever you hear somebody got saved or you say somebody needs to be saved, what is it that you're trying to communicate there? What is it that you kind of fill in the blanks and you, you build around that word where you say, this is what I mean by this? No doubt your age and your church experience uh, will dictate much of how you fill in those blanks. In my experience, when I hear that word, I tend to think about, essentially what I tend to think about is not going to hell. Whenever I, whenever I hear somebody talk about salvation or saying, you need to be saved, what I think that they are basically saying is uh, not going to hell, that I got saved, that means I'm not going to hell now. Or I'm going to heaven now instead. That's generally how I would have filled in the blanks there. If I am saved, then perhaps that is uh, all that I need and I have punched my ticket into heaven and all is well. I wonder if that's the case for you. If that's what you, you think whenever you hear the term salvation. But the problem with that definition of salvation is that, that it's essentially only good for a day in the future. You know, it's like buying a concert ticket. It will be super useful one of these days. But today, it's not really all that practical or all that useful. And I think that's how we view salvation. That it's basically irrelevant to us today. It will be helpful one day. 
It will be useful to us one day, that day that we die. But today, it's just kind of a thing. The problem with that is, I don't think that's how the Bible sees salvation at all. I don't think that's at all how, how, how Peter or the other writers in the New Testament talk about salvation. In fact, when the Bible talks about salvation, it talks far more about its implications for today and its foundations that are rooted in the deep past. We tend to talk about salvation as something that I've done in the re- that I've done in the recent past and look forward to in the distant future. But the way the Bible talks about salvation is the Bible sees our salvation as something secured in the distant past. And then it has current implications, as well as implications somewhere in the distant future. So if we're using that word salvation, and this is a problem within the church all the time. Many of you know, I've had conversations with a lot of you guys, kind of uh, debating would be too strong of a word, I think, but, but, but working through some different theological things where you're learning from me, I'm learning from you, and we kind of view things a little bit differently. And the vast majority of the time, what I have learned over my time as a, as a pastor, the vast majority of the time when we are debating over theological things, we are not debating the same thing, we are debating the definition of words. And so what I have learned to do whenever we're going to talk through some things and we're going to talk about, uh, uh, you know, kind of different takes that we have on things, then what I'm probably going to say is, what do you mean by that word? When you say this, what do you mean by that? To the point that it probably gets a little bit obnoxious, but, but I know that if we're using different definitions, different dictionaries for the same word, I know that what that means is we're never going to be able to fully understand what the other one's talking about. And so what I want to make sure that we do today is we take this word salvation and we use the same dictionary together. And we let it be determined by Scripture and what Peter says in this case, and less by what our our age and our church context dictates. Does that make sense? So what we want to do is we want to go through and we want to say, what does the Bible mean when it says salvation? What does it mean to be saved? And more importantly, what implications does it have for us today? Maybe even ask the question, how do we get it? One of the great things, I'll be honest with you, the way I, my plan for this week as I was prepping for my sermon, as I was working through stuff, I thought this was going to go in a totally different direction, had the bones of a different sermon written and ready to go. Uh, And then in the last 48 hours or so, just felt like things were going I felt like I needed to change directions on this, and I needed to do something uh, different. And part of the reason why is because one of the things that I love about this church, one of the things that I love about uh, people here and and who we are, is that we have uh, we we have two kind of two kind of people here, and and really uh, along the spectrum, we have different things on the spectrum, but we have two different kind of people here. We have some of you guys that are theology nerds that love to talk theology. You love to debate theology. You love to work through the theology. You love to to talk about all of that kind of stuff. And you get excited when we get to talk about these kind of deep things like that. And then we have others of you that are like, all right, I appreciate the argument. I appreciate the, uh, the back and forth a little bit here. But in the end, can you just tell me what it says? And can you tell me the brass tacks, what it means for me on Monday? 
What it means for me when I walk out this door on a Sunday afternoon. So we have the uber practical, tell me what to do with it. And we have the theology guys who love to say, let's talk through this. This makes my head uh, spin a little bit, so I really enjoy it. And we have, we have both camps here, and I love that. I hope that we don't ever uh, go all, the, all in, in both ways. But that pushes me to work through things and think, 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 think through things a little bit. And what I think is great is... This passage in 1 Peter, this is going to give you theology, guys, all you want. Because there's a lot in here. He packs a ton of theology into just a couple of verses here. But for those of you that want something practical to come out of it, man, he's got it right there for us too. He's got both of them right here together. And that's what I want to be able to do is pull out both of those things this morning. So let's read 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So that word salvation's in there a couple of different times, and we'll see what Peter means by that. So let's remember, Peter is writing to Christians, but not a huge gathering of Christians. He's not writing to a big church anywhere. He's, he, he's, he's writing to these most likely small house churches in these cities all across, uh, all across Asia. And he's writing them to encourage them, to exhort them to be uh, faithful in their believing, to remain steadfast in the midst of what is likely uh, a ramp up in persecution that is going to be coming their ways. He's already talked about their status that we saw last week as elect exiles. And now he launches into some heavy theology. He starts talking about what it means to be saved. And why it should matter to those who hear or read this letter. But for those of you that are in the more kind of practical, just tell me how it applies camp. I want you to see what Peter does here. For Peter, the, 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 the comforting thing, the, the thing that he's going to apply is not just some sort of like, go get them, you guys can do it, hang in there, halftime speech uh, from a coach. That's not what Peter's going to do. What Peter's going to do is he's going to take theology, and it's the theology that's going to drive everything that comes after that. So he's not just giving a, a, a rah-rah pep, speech, or pep, pep talk. He is, he is coming in and he is saying, you need to know these things, and if you know these things, it will impact how you live your life. He runs to the theology. From the opening verse, the opening couple of verses now, right here where we're at, he goes straight to the theology. 
And I think Peter does this because when he sees how salvation works, he gets overwhelmed by it. He's overwhelmed by the mechanics of it. Not what we need to do, but instead what God has done on our behalf. Look at verse 3. Peter shouts and he begins by shouting about the blessings of God. And when he says the blessings of God, he's not saying, you guys have got a great house, you guys have got all kinds of cool things, you guys are well established and your church is growing. That's not what he's talking about when he talks about the blessings of God. Because I think that people might argue, those folks in these churches might argue, what kind of blessings are you talking about? Because the reality is, I'm probably going to leave this meeting where we're meeting as a church and go back home, and there's a good chance that my home has been robbed. And there's no cops to call, there's no one to defend me, there's no one to defend us. This is going to be the life that I am going to live as a Christian. So what blessings are you shouting about, Peter? What, what gets you so excited here? And what he talks about is grace. What he talks about is mercy. By definition, grace and mercy, the way those things work, these are things that we have been given, but we have not earned on our own merit. For Peter, he sees this as a huge source of encouragement. That we have been shown mercy. Not that we have achieved forgiveness. Not that we have obtained our salvation through what we have done. But, but God, in His mercy, it says, according to His great mercy. So why for Peter would this be an encouragement for him? To say, Peter, to say, you can't do this, you can't own, you can't earn this, you can't, you can't do the works to get this. Why would that be an encouragement for Peter? For Peter, he recognizes that the attempt to, to earn these things And if we define salvation as something that we earn, something that we obtain, for Peter, he recognizes that 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 would be bad news, not good news. Instead, he sees the mercy as good news because he knows that if we can gain something and win something on merit, we can lose it on merit too. If we can obtain something through the things that we can do, then we can lose something based on the things that we can do. And he's ridden this roller coaster before. Let's remember who we're talking about here with Peter. Remember in the Gospels, Peter is the outspoken, highly devoted leader of the apostles. Peter is the one who is, who is, who is there that says that, that he could go nowhere else because Jesus is the one who has the words of life. It is, the, it is Peter who, who refuses to let Jesus wash his feet, but then whenever Jesus says, no, this is part of it, this is something that you have to do, Peter says, then don't just wash my feet, Lord, wash my whole body too. It is Peter who, who, who says that he will be with Jesus to the very end, that he will fight with Jesus, who pulls out the sword when Jesus is arrested. It is Peter who does all these things, who looks like the guy who has earned some pretty great things. But it is also Peter we know who is betrayed, not betrayed, but denied Jesus in his final hours, cursing as some girl, denying Jesus and denying that he was ever an apostle or a disciple of Jesus. While Jesus was headed to the cross, Peter was running 
away. Peter knows that he doesn't want, he doesn't want a God that's fair and judges us on our merits, but a God that's merciful and that looks on us with grace. And he knows that's who Jesus is. And he knows it because he's lived it firsthand. So you can hear in these verses, as, as Peter is talking, there's almost an, an excitement jumping off the page. I feel like you could, there's, there's no, in the, in the original language, in the Greek, there's no punctuation here. But it feels like to me, you could put an exclamation point about every fifth word in this. Even if that's not how the English language works. It just feels like this is what he's doing. Like, he's so excited to share this news. He's so excited to exhort people with everything that's in here. And he's excited because he knows this grace firsthand. Because whenever, uh, whenever Peter eventually sees Jesus after his resurrection... Jesus comes to Peter and he says, do you love me? Ask him three different times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he says, then go and feed my sheep. And he restores Peter to ministry, forgives him for his, uh, for, for his, his walking away in those final hours and shows Peter mercy. So part of why Peter is so excited is because he has lived this. We'll talk about here in a few minutes. I think part of the reason why we don't get all that excited about church or talking about Jesus is because we've not lived this. Because we're still trying to earn our place in the kingdom. That's a huge encouragement for Peter. And it should be a huge encouragement for us. Peter doubles down on this idea that it's not our merit with his next phrase that he follows up with. He tells us our salvation is not our own doing. He says that it's not our walking an aisle. It's not our praying a prayer. It's not our filling out a card. It's not our doing. If you had to answer the question, how did you get saved? How would you answer that question? What would be your follow up to that? If you're in here this morning, you're a Christian, you would say that you're saved. And somebody said, how did you get saved? What would you say? Would your answer be, well, I walked an aisle. Well, I prayed with a pastor. Well, I prayed with my mom or my dad. Is that how you got saved? Peter knows the answer to that question. And the answer is that it is God that has caused us to be born again. It is God that has caused us to be born again. Now, again, I talked about this last week. This is like one of those things that the, the theology guys will debate this all over the place, but it says it right here, plain as day. Who is the cause? Who is the one that does the work? Who's the one that initiates the call? Who's the one that does it? Who caused it? It's God. It's, it's clear in the text who's the one at work. Peter knows that's good news. Because if God is the cause, then I simply respond to the grace. If I'm the cause of my salvation, if I'm the one, then I have to prompt myself. But dead people don't prompt themselves to life. You didn't prompt yourself into this world. You didn't cause yourself to be born. 
As a Christian, you didn't cause yourself to be born. God was the one who caused it. It is God that does the prompting in our own hearts. Do we respond? Yes. Is there a part that we play simply in responding to the grace? Yes. But it is God who initiates that. So Peter doubles down on the idea that it is God the one at work. So he talks about mercy. He says that God is the one that caused it. But he doesn't just double down. He triples down on what God is doing in our salvation. Let's keep reading again in verses 4 and 5. Salvation to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by whose power? God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's, he's going back to this idea again. It is God that is doing the work. God caused it, and now God is going to sustain us through his power. He tells us that salvation cannot perish, it cannot be defiled, and it will never fade away. And he tells us that, our, that this salvation is being kept in heaven for us. This is how I think many of us would define salvation, something that is being kept in heaven for us one of these days. Just one of these days we will have that salvation. It is a great salvation, no doubt, but it's just not something that matters much today. It is something for us kept in heaven. But that's not exclusively how Peter sees it here. Yes, that is true. There is a sense in which we are that we will be saved. But that's not the only sense in which Peter sees that. These verses show us that, that salvation is not just something that will happen, but salvation is something that is happening. So you can put all of that together here. You can put all of what we've seen about, about uh, in, in, in the beginning of, of 1 Peter and whenever it talks about Uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And what we can say is that as Christians, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. All of those are true at the same time. Salvation is not just for the distant future. Salvation is not just something that we've done in our past. But it's also something that is happening now. We are being saved. And it says, how are we being saved? By God's power. I mean, each part of this, each part of this is God at work. God at work in the past and the resurrection of of Jesus and the sprinkling of the blood, what we saw last week. God at work now by his power. God at work in keeping us as we are being saved. And now whenever it says, so it says right here, it says that uh, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So whenever it talks about faith there, whenever it talks about faith, that's our faith. That is our faith that is being, that is being talked about there. But that is a faith that is rooted and held together, how? By God's power. Do you see how that works? It's not that we don't have a, a role in this. We have a role. It is our faith. But we are not in charge of sustaining that. It is God who sustains that in us through his power. It is God at work in every moment. 
And this is where Peter makes kind of a digression from his argument that he's building here. But he makes a digression because he knows that these folks that are in these churches need to hear this. And so he makes a bit of an excursus that that really just proves the point that he's trying to make about how it's God's power working in our faith. And he, he, he wants us to know that we don't simply sit here and wait as those that are grieving in hopelessness until the end of the age or until we die. But instead, what he says is that faith that is being sustained by God's power is also tried and refined in suffering. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice. This is in your salvation, you rejoice. It says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A lot of people hate these verses. A lot of people hate these verses because these verses can be used as a weapon for those that are suffering. A way to tell people, kind of get over it. Rejoice, be happy. Don't worry about that suffering. It can be all right. See, God's got this all in control. Just hang tough, because God's got this, and he's going to use it. That's not particularly helpful most of the time to tell people that. There might be a time and a place, but most of the time it's not particularly helpful to say that in the midst of suffering. And Peter's not really saying that here. He's not primarily using the suffering to focus on us. He maintains all throughout this passage his focus on God. And what he's trying to highlight is how God is using it to to increase the resolve of our faith. So again, do you see how, how God and man are working together here? It is our faith. So we're not absolved of responsibility here. It's not as though we just... We just sit back and say, no, 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 none of this is on me. I can do whatever. It is our faith, but it is in God's power that he utilizes and sustains that faith. And part of how he will sustain our faith and that he will refine our faith is through suffering. So God does not waste our suffering. He does not waste our suffering. No suffering goes unused in God's economy. Instead, he will take that suffering and he will use it to refine us. Not just sustain our faith, but make our faith stronger. The same faith that he empowers is the same faith that is securing for us an eternal eternal inheritance. So you see how all this works together for Peter whenever he's talking to these churches that are about to increase their suffering. God causes us to be born again. God secures our inheritance. God uses our suffering. God sustains our faith. It's all on what God is doing. He's the actor in all of it. He is not responding to us. 
but he is divinely pursuing us at every turn. And for Peter, that is an enormous source of comfort. That it is not on him. You can almost feel Peter's excitement as we go through each one of these things. I don't know if you read that passage that way, but if not, I would encourage you to reread it in that way. It is such a big deal for him. It is such a big thing. Why is it that these people in these cities and these churches need to hear this? Why do we, why do you and I need to hear this big dose of theology that he gives right at the beginning? Peter firmly believes that if we understand the deep mercy of God and the way he acts in our life, if we truly understand just how much he is at work in our life, despite how much we deserve wrath and condemnation, if we truly understand what is going on here, it will impact everything about us. I want you to think about these songs that we sang this morning and how these kind of play out just a little bit. That first song, Relent, that, that song, Relent, that is not like a made-for-a-congregation made song. So I know some of you guys are like, I don't know exactly how to sing this, and I don't know, like, it, it's a little bit of a heavier song, but listen, it is a great confession for us to make as a church. It is a great confession, and I just love the refrain that comes in there just over and over, I'm so tired. I'm just so tired. And that's not talking about because you didn't get enough sleep last night. That's talking about because you've worked too hard on something that you cannot secure. You've worked hard to secure for yourself something that you will inevitably lose for yourself. And if you keep going and you keep working in this way, you will continue to lose it because you are not powerful enough to hold on to your salvation. You need someone to birth something new in you, create something new in you, and then someone to hold you. And what Peter says is that you don't have to be tired anymore because you don't have to labor for this salvation. This salvation is a gift and it is sustained and is given through faith by God. So that confession, I'm just so tired, that is the right confession. And what Peter says is you don't have to be tired. And in fact, you know what you can be? You can be joyful. You can rejoice. You can, you can understand this is what Jesus means when he says that, that my, my, my yoke is, is easy, my burden is light. You don't have to be tired because you're not straining for something you can never obtain. Listen to these last couple of verses in, in uh, this, this passage here, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. Why he doesn't just say rejoice. That would have fit the bill there. He could have just said rejoice. This is like, this is like a, a, a double, like he, he, he's making it very clear what we're doing here. Rejoicing with joy. That is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, so you've got these three things here. We love, we believe, and we rejoice. Why? 
because of what God has done for us. We love, we believe, and we rejoice. Man, this is right there, right there, these songs that we sang this, this morning. We, we relent, we let go. There's nothing more for me here. I am an exile. This is not my home. Does that sound familiar? There's nothing more for me here. And then you go on and in Waymaker we sing, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. That sounds an awful lot like what Peter says about suffering. Even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of when you don't see what God is doing, he's at work. He's doing it. He's sustaining your faith and he's strengthening your faith even when you don't see it, even when you don't feel it. And then we get to the third song we sang, Great Are You, Lord, and it plays itself out right here. Filled with glory. Inexpressible joy. Filled with glory. So we pour out our praise to God because of what He has done. We love, we believe, we rejoice. And listen, this is what I said earlier, and this is, this is where we shift from the, the theology part to the, the application part. But, but notice, the application part is driven by the theology here. I'm convinced that some of you don't love the way that you should, you don't believe the way that you should, you don't rejoice and live life with joy the way that you should, because you don't believe anything that I just said or that Peter told us. We don't love Jesus because at our core, we believe something in us deserves salvation. I know, you, I know you're not allowed to say that at church. I know you're going to say, no, 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 I don't, I know I'm, oh, wretch that I am. I know that's how you're going to say it. But at your core, you believe you're actually a pretty good guy. Especially compared to that other guy, whoever he is. You're a pretty good guy. And maybe he doesn't deserve God's grace and mercy, but on some measure, you deserve it. You pick the measure, of course. You decide what your checklist is, and if you get through your checklist, you deserve the grace. That means it's not grace anymore, but that's still what we call it. And then you wonder why you have no emotion, you have no love for Jesus. Because you think you did it, not Jesus. We don't love Jesus because we don't see the desperate need of the power of the resurrection of Jesus. We don't need a resurrection in our lives. We just need a bit of behavior modification. We just need to be refined a little bit, change a little bit. But if you know how empty and how dead you are, it will produce a love for Jesus that follows right along with what Peter is doing here. Where you can't, you, you, you can't fully express. You're, you're saying things like rejoice with joy because you're trying to communicate the emotion and the impact of your life that it has had on your life. When you know just how much you need him and you see what he has done from beginning to end, love is the result. I'm convinced that some of us do not rejoice because we are still convinced that we are the ones that brought about our salvation. 
And we are still somehow convinced that we are the ones that can lose that salvation. You see, when we start to fill in our own definitions for things that God has already defined for us, not only do we misunderstand or just completely miss what God has done, but oftentimes we forsake a joy that is meant to be ours. For many, salvation is a matter of doing something, not a matter of joy. For many, salvation is a matter of of what you get to do one day. It's not a matter of what is happening today. And so the joy is somewhere out there in the future, but today, it's just grinding. Today, it's just just another day. Today is just working hard. Today is just, just another day to do another thing. But the way Peter sees our salvation is that today is another day that he has kept you. Today is another day that he has saved you. Today is another day to rejoice because he has been at work today. He causes us to be born again. He sustains our faith in his power. And our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Not because we are the ones that are in charge of keeping it, but because it is God who keeps it for us. He will even use the worst moments of our lives in order to secure this blessing on our behalf. Not just the moments that we do well, not just the moments that we think, all right, this is going well for us, but the moments when it all falls apart around us. The moment whenever the chaos is the greatest, the darkness is the darkest, and the suffering and the confusion is all around us. Peter says, hope can be found. And he will use those moments to help secure our salvation. So church, let us define salvation correctly. Not some future event after we die, but a present reality meant to sustain us in our worst moments. And let that produce for us love for Jesus, belief in Jesus, and hope for the future and for today. Why? Why is this so important for Peter? Because if we are going to live as exiles, if we are going to live as exiles, we have to live with all of this in view. We have to live with the future in view. We have to live knowing that this world is not our home, this world is not all there is, so that whenever the suffering comes, we can say, it's okay because something better, unfading, undefiled is ahead of me. But we also have to do all these things when we live as exiles because we have to know that even in the midst of this, we are not just hanging on for the sake of hanging on and enduring for the sake of enduring. We are doing these things because in it, our faith is refined and our faith is by God's power sustained in these things. I told you that that, that Peter doubled down and then tripled down on his language here about God being the actor and God the one working. In your life, you will be called to double down and triple down all the time. God does not call you to salvation and then say, I'll be back in a little while. You're good now. 
what he says is, all right, you have been born again. I have done this work in you, and I will sustain you. But it is your faith that is at work. And so tomorrow when you wake up, I'm going to need you to double down on that salvation that you confessed today. And tomorrow afternoon, whenever you get some bad news, I'm going to need you to triple down on that salvation that you confessed today. And every day for the rest of your life, you will be called to double down, triple down, over and over and over, so that all your chips are on Jesus. Every bit of it. You got, you, you, you've not spread out your hope. You don't have a plan B. You don't have a backup plan. Everything is on Jesus. And when that happens, that's what the Bible calls faith. And for Peter, what he sees is that brings glory to God. Because it says, I trust you. So my question for you, we'll end here, we'll wrap this up. My question for you is, where are you hedging your bets this morning? Where is it that you're saying, all right, I get it. God did some great things for me in the past. I'm a little nervous about some stuff I got going on here today. Let me just make sure that, that, that he's got this taken care of. And God is saying, don't move a chip off of Jesus. Don't move it at all. Everything you got is on him. And not only can he stand up under that weight, which nothing else can. Everything else you try to put your chips on will crumble under the weight of your hope and the weight of your salvation. Jesus will not. And so what he is saying is, put all of your hope there. And when you do that, that glorifies God. And that sets you up for this inheritance that is undefiled, unwavering, imperishable. And that even now in this moment, we are being saved to that end. So I'm going to pray. I'll be back here in the back. I'll be more than happy to talk or pray with anyone. And I just want, I want to challenge you to ask that question this morning. Ask that question this week. And be honest. Don't give yourself the church answer. Where else have you put your chips? Where else have you put your hope? What else are you betting on to come through for you? And I want to challenge you to put it all on Jesus. And he will take it all. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess that far too often we do not relent, as we sang earlier. We do not back down. We do not do any of these things. In fact, we double down on ourselves all the time. Father, I pray that you will show us the, the, the folly in that. For those in here that are trusting in other things to sustain them, trusting in, in some other inheritance in the future that they believe will be theirs, Father, I pray that it will fall apart and crumble underneath their feet. And that as that happens, you will be at work. For those that have not been born again, that have not Come, Father, I pray that you would cause them to come. 
Cause them to be born again. Father, for those of us in here that have experienced that grace, Father, help us not to walk away from that grace, but instead, in the midst of life, that we would fully trust in you and your power to sustain our faith. And I pray in all of it, you would be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.